Well, I opened this series up uh, for those of you that are joining us. We're finishing a five-week series on the Holy Spirit, uh, which uh, has, been, has been a good study. And um, next week, we'll talk about the resurrection, and then after that, we'll jump back into Hebrews, which I'm excited for to finish the book of Hebrews. But uh, I said in the beginning of this, this <clears throat> series that I uh, can't think of a lot of things that, that are more quickly could more quickly lead to division in, in a church than the subject of the Holy Spirit. And what I meant when I said that was not so much the person of the Holy Spirit, but rather how he works tends to be the thing that Christians often don't uh, agree on and, and uh, what it actually looks like to be spiritual, to be spirit-filled, to be a um, person that is working in the spirit. Uh, Christians don't always agree on that. And, and so this morning, as we wrap up this series, I want to just really try to give some clarity and some definition to what do we mean when we say we want the spirit to work in our church through things like spiritual gifts, you know, every system or every organization or institution or association um, has its own metrics for gauging whether something or someone is healthy within it. it it's just natural to, to sort of do that. So let me give you an example of an institution or, or, or kind of a, uh, or, or an organization that has those metrics. Um, now, I haven't been in the military. Some of you have. But for those of you that have been in the military, you know there's a very clearly laid out set of, of sort of standards and expectations and, and ladders to climb. If you want to move up in rank, then there are certain things that they're looking for. How well do you handle orders? Are you disciplined? Um, do you take responsibility? Those kinds of things. So within the institution of the military, there is a clear path to maturity, if you will. And the same is true in just about any kind of institution or organization or association. Everyone sort of has their own. If you're uh, on the, the political left or you're on the political right, each of those parties have sort of created for themselves uh, their, their virtue signaling, if you will, the things that you can do within it to move up, the things that are important to that, the distinctives that are important to that. And churches are really no different. You know, every church has its own kind of distinctives or its own things that it sort of looks at to, to gauge and to metric maturity. So some churches, and some of you guys have been in the church world for a while. Some of you guys have spent a lot of your life in the church. You've visited a lot of different churches, so you know this is true. In, in the church world, some churches, their metric of maturity is academics. So if you want to move up if you want to be a shepherding or a leadership position, if you want to have any kind of authority or anything, you need to go get some letters next to your name. You need to go read some systematic theology. And your level of understanding of theological truths will often be the metric for maturity. In other circles, it may have nothing to do with academics. It may have everything to do with heart and passion and charisma and sort of giftedness. You guys ever been in those churches? And they, they tend often to, to sort of degradate or demonize the academics. They say, well, that's just dry. We're all about heart and hand. We're about doing rather than overly thinking, right? And so these people in their organization, they say, if you want to move up here, you've you got to not be so mind-focused and be more passion-focused, more heart-focused, more feelings-driven. That's a, a different kind of a, a, a institution or organization. Sometimes they emphasize that. What should be the benchmark for maturity in the body of Jesus Christ? What, what should be the metric that we gauge for maturity? What does it mean to be mature? What should 
we consider? What should we focus on? Not our little hobby horses and our little cultural focuses and our, our little things that we often find uh, you know, unity in, but rather what is the thing that God has said is the primary focus in a church to be mature and to grow? And the, the answer to that question I think is in our text this morning. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, which is all one literary unit, Paul spends actually one of the longest dialogues or one of, the, one of the longest sections of thought that he has in all of his epistles to try to answer this question. Within the organization of the church, what should be our metric for maturity? What should be the thing that decides whether we are in fact quote-unquote, a spiritual church, a spirit-filled church. Paul's going to address that, and he's going to address it with the Corinthians. The question you could say he's answering is, how do we know if the Spirit's really working in our church? And how do we know, listen, how do we know who the really spiritual people are? Right? Like, how do we know who the people are that are really full of the Spirit? Is it because they're speaking in tongues? Is it because they prophesies because they have a master's degree or a doctorate? Is it because they have a, a cool story about how God called them into missions? Is it because they are uh, very generous with their money? Or what, what is it? And, and where do we go to answer that question? Of course, we could look a lot of places. We could look to the qualifications of an elder. In Timothy and Titus, we could look to the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus sort of paints a portrait of, of kingdom character, right? But I think our passage this morning is the clearest passage on what our metric for maturity should be. And what it means to be a truly spiritual person in God's economy, in God's lexicon, in God's definition. So this morning, we're going to work all the way through chapter 12 and chapter 13. So buckle up. We're going to cover a lot of ground. And my hope this morning is not that you would walk away going like, oh, I like that sermon, but rather that you would go away prizing and treasuring Corinthians 12, 13, and even 14. That you go, wow, I love this section of scripture. I see Paul's logic. I've been, I've been introduced to it and I agree with it. That's my hope, my goal for you this morning. And that we as a church would have a bullseye as to what we gauge as maturity and success and godliness and spirituality and health within the system that God has created called the body of Jesus Christ. That's my goal. So, take a look at verse one. Paul is addressing a church with misguided metrics of spirituality. Now, I, this would be a lot easier to teach us if we had spent the last six months in the book of Corinthians. There's a reason we teach through books of the Bible. is because we want you to get the flow. We want you to get the background, the context, the setting. These are letters written by, usually, apostles to particular instances. And so Paul's been writing to this church that he planted in Corinth, Okay? And Corinth was a primarily Gentile city and a very pagan one at that. And there was a lot of particular things going on in the church at Corinth that Paul is writing into. And here's how he opens this section in chapter 12, verse 1. It says, Now concerning, note it, spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. Uninformed there is the Greek agneo. It's where we get our word agnostic. So he's saying, I don't want you to have a vacuum left. I don't want you to have space open for this to be filled regarding this subject of, my Bible translates it, spiritual gifts. But I actually think as I studied this, I actually think there's more of a, a, a nuance here than just, oh, this is a section about spiritual gifts, which as Christians, we're usually all pretty interested in, right? What are these spiritual gifts? What, are, what the heck is tongues? What in the world is prophecy? What do we do about that? 
Can we heal today? Do we have that gift? Everyone wants to know that stuff. But I actually don't think that Paul is introducing a section of Scripture to, to give us a, a theological treatise on gifts. I actually think what he's saying here is, well, let me, let me explain. The word spiritual gifts here is pneumatikos. What's the root word there? Pneuma, which is what? Spirit. Okay? And this could be translated actually just spirituals. So you could say, Paul's actually saying, now concerning the spirituals, I don't want you to be ignorant. It could be translated, not just spiritual gifts, but it also could be translated spiritual people, spiritual persons. Paul could be saying, now concerning, and I got to do this, you got to watch me. Now concerning the spiritual people in your church could be, and then when you look at the context, that seems to be what he's going to do. He's going to, to sort of question the spirituality of certain members within the body that, that have sort of decided that they are the spiritual elite. It could, also trans, it could also be translated now concerning spiritual things, which would broaden the category. Maybe, maybe this is just a section about what spirituality either, you know, is, or maybe it's gifts. But regardless, Paul's conversation here, the conversation we're going to jump into and examine, is a conversation about what spirituality is. What does it mean to be spiritual? Now, there's backstory here that, that we need to understand. Okay, the backstory is that there was a lot of problems in the, the gathering, the ecclesia, which is the Greek for, for congregation. There was a lot of problems in the ecclesia of Corinth. They were kind of a dysfunctional church. There was a lot of worldliness in the way that they were practicing and uh, gathering together as, as a body. We know for sure, as you read the book of Corinthians, that there were people that were getting hammered on the communion wine. Always a bad idea, Right? When I was a kid, because I was a church kid, like when nobody was looking, we would sneak up and go, we like take as many shots, but it was just grape juice, right? So it didn't matter. No big deal. And the, the bread were like, and they were like, we don't even like that. Those are, those are oyster crackers. Why are we eating that? I don't even know. All you high church people are like, that's so bad. So they were, they were getting hammered on the communion wine. They were, they were gluttonous in their, their love fe or their, their agape feast, their community feast. So when they would come together to eat, there'd be people that would eat so much that people would show up and there'd be nothing left. There was rampant immorality in the church. We could go on. There's a lot there. You can read the book for yourself. But suffice it to say, Paul is addressing a church that's got some problems. And one of those problems is, is that their gathering times have become chaotic and they've become a chance for people to show up in order to show off. And there seems to be a particular gift that, that these Corinthians have sort of highlighted as the primary gift that shows spirituality. And it's the gift of tongues. Which is why this section of Scripture, chapters 12, 13, 14, centers around largely the gift of tongues and its operation within the church. Because Paul is trying to help these guys understand what tongues are for, what they are, and how they compare to the diversity of all the gifts within the body. So the Corinthians were emphasizing the demonstrative gifts, and they were limiting the diversity of the gifts. So people that didn't have these loud, sort of flashy, charismatic, demonstrative gifts were being pushed to the back, while the people that just happened to, you know, at least think they had this, this gift were sort of taking all of the, the focus onto themselves. And that led to a malnutrition of the body. You know, your body can be 
you can have malnutrition, like if you just ate donuts every day and that's all you ate. Like you'd be mal, you'd have malnutrition. There's actually uh, something I was I was looking it up called malabsorption. It's this this disease or something where your body actually doesn't allow itself to absorb the nutrients from food. So you're eating, but you're not actually getting the nutrients from it. Well, the the body at Corinth is sort of mal, uh, they're dealing with malnutrition and malabsorption. They're all gathering and all the parts of the body are there and all the gifts are present and the body should be, like Ephesians 4 says, building itself up in love under the fullness of Christ, but instead it's starving. Because rather than the gospel being put forth and rather than than good biblical prophecy happening and encouragement and and all the things that Paul would say are are primary, rather it's all about this show for people to go up and show how spiritual they are by uttering some kind of a tongue. So this is what Paul's trying to address. This is what Paul's trying to speak against. It's a corrective instruction for them. Now, let me just say before we get into this, let me say some things that Paul will not say in this text, okay? Paul is not going to say there's no such thing as spiritual maturity. He's not going to say that because there is, and you should desire it. There is spiritual maturity. There are people that are more mature in the Lord, and we should desire to be more mature. He's not going to say, listen, he's not going to say there's no outward sign of that maturity because there is. He's not going to say there's nothing we should look at or look to to determine if someone is spiritually mature. It's just not tongues. Spoiler alert. He's not going to say it doesn't matter how we gather on Sunday. He's not going to say that. In fact, just the opposite. He's going to give a lot of instruction about how to gather in a way that is um, actually surrendered to God's sense of order. Because, you know, contrary to popular belief, the Holy Spirit is not the unorganized member of the Trinity. You ever notice people blame the Holy Spirit when something's unorganized? I didn't plan this. I must be the Holy Spirit. I don't understand that. Holy Spirit's all about planning. He works in the plan. I think he works in preparation, right? So he's not going to say that there, there really should be no plan or structure on your services. It'd be more spiritual if we all just showed up and said, I feel like this, and then I feel like that. He, he's, saying, he's not going to say that. He's also not going to say, and I'm, I'm trying to make everyone upset a little bit today. I'm just going to try to you know, shoot you know, across everyone's bow. He's not going to say there's no spiritual gift of tongues. Okay? He's not going to say that. I don't see it. It's not here. He's also not going to say that all gifts are equally important because they're not, okay? They're all valuable, but some are more valuable than others. So having said that, let's, let's kind of start to work through the passage. I'm going to speed up a little bit here. We'll start in verse 1. <laughs> you're like two chapters, and it's been 20 minutes, and you're already on verse 1. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans... You were led astray to mute or dumb idols. However, you were led. So Paul starts by just kind of reminding these guys, uh, hey, you know, remember when you guys were pagans? (laughs) Like yesterday? Uh, Remember that? (laughs) Like two years ago? Remember when you were like, you know, you were eating bacon? Uh, Well, they were still probably eating bacon. But, you know, they they were just Gentile pagans, like worshiping idols and all this kind of stuff. He's like, hey, just, just remember that. Keep that in the background. There's just a little side note here, by the way. It's important not to overly dwell on who you were, but it's also important to remember who you were and the idols you used to worship because we do have this bad tendency as Christians sometimes to settle back into our old idolatries. 
So just be aware of them. Paul just, he's not trying to hammer these guys for being uh, former pagans. They're new in Christ, but he does want them to be aware of their bent towards pagan thinking because some of their practice in the church here is kind of pagan-like. So he just brings that up. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. And why is Paul saying that? Um, I think it's very simple. I think Paul is just trying to put some of the people that are really freaked out by the tongues thing, he's trying to put them at ease a little bit and go, calm down. Because I think some people in the church were worried that these tongue speakers were going to curse Jesus by accident. And I think what Paul is saying is he's saying, no, if the Holy Spirit's in them, they're not going to accidentally curse Jesus. Nor could they accidentally worship Jesus as Lord because both are a work of the Spirit. The same Spirit that brings forth conversion is the same Spirit that brings forth sanctification. He's working in both, okay? Now look at verse 4. This is a key verse. We could spend two hours just on this verse. We're trying not to do that. Verse 4. Now, there are varieties. I want you to note two words. Varieties and same. Varieties and same. Let your mind highlight those as we read through this. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. What do you think Paul's point here is? There's variety, but it's all from the same God. And notice he he slips the Trinity in here. Do you see that? Paul was very Trinitarian. He doesn't say, hey, I'm going to talk about the Trinity really quick. He just slips it in there. Where is it? It's uh, Lord... It's spirit and it's God, implied the Father, right there. So we have diversity in the Godhead, and that flows out into diversity in the body of Christ. And he says there's three different things. There's gifts, there's services or ministries, and then there's results. All three of those things are ultimately flowing from God. They're all from him. Okay, they're they're his gift. God does lots of different things, And they all come from him, and it's not about you, it's about him. Verse 7. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for himself. Is that what it says? Everybody that wasn't looking at the Bible is like, oh. Look at it. What does it say? To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Koine, the common, common good. It's, it's for community. It's for the, the, the gift wasn't given for yourself. It was given for the body. So we learn four things in verse 7 that are super important. First of all, we learn that the Spirit works, listen, the Spirit works in every believer. You might be saying, no, I don't, I don't have a spiritual gift. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. Look at verse 6. Look at verse 6 again. It says, there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone, meaning every believer has a ministry. Every, every believer is seeing the work of God in their life, and every believer has gifts. Every single one in this room, you have gifts. But number two, the gift is not for you. It's not a gift for you. It's the gift for who? For the body. Are you with that? This is where we, the first place we go haywire when we think about the spiritual gifts. We think, God, what did you give me? 
And that was the problem. See, they, they, they were thinking about what it gets me rather than how does it build the body. Let me, let me give an example. We have some family friends, and, and usually on Christmas time, they send us a, um, a card, and they, they put some cash in there, and they say, hey, here's this. Get some gifts for the kids. So, so I open it up, and I see cash, and I don't think, oh, sweet, I got some cash. What do I think? This is some cash to buy a gift for the kids. So God gave you, he instilled, he deposited a manifestation of his spirit into you, and he didn't do it for yourself. He did it so that you could reinvest it back into the body. That's the purpose of the gifts. By design, they're designed to pour back into the body. The other thing we learn here is that it's not from you. It's a manifestation of the spirit. It's not something that you could do on your own. I think there is a difference, by the way, between natural abilities that we give over to the Lord and supernatural abilities that we get from the Lord. Okay, there is a difference. These, these are things that we could not do outside of the spirit of God. And that actually makes them one of the most frustrating categories of things ever. Because as a pastor, I need those things sometimes. And guess what? I don't get a button that I can push. Like, I, like sometimes I just need to speak a word. Like sometimes I just need a, a prophetic ability in the pulpit or whatever it is to be able to just go speak into a moment. And sometimes I'm like, I can't make it happen. Because it's not my ability. The Spirit allots. The Spirit portions out according to His will. Because He's a person. And He has a will and He has a mind. So it's not from you. It's from the Spirit. And we also learn that the gifts, you learn here that the gifts are diverse. And this is Paul's, his next point he's going to make here. The gifts are diverse. Uh, you have a unique combination of gifts. Everyone does. And Paul now wants to exemplify that. So verses 8 through, uh, eight through 10 are where we're going to just kind of pause and think for a minute because this is where Paul gives a list of gifts. And this is where I just want to spend a little bit of time trying to help understand what some of these gifts are. But hear me on this. The point of this list we're about to read is not the list. The point is Paul's trying to make a point about diversity, that there's lots of different gifts. That's all he's trying to say. He's just trying to say that there are lots of different gifts. Imagine for a minute that uh, 2,000, or, you know, for, you, you ask me something about a, a job. He's saying, what kind of jobs are out there? And I'm like, oh, there's lots of jobs. You know, the construction. I mean, you could work at uh, Dutch Bros. You could be a broista or chickista. You know, I mean, you could, you, you, could, uh, you, know, you could flip burgers. Like, you could be a trash man. I just think of four things off the top of my head. And then 2,000 years from now, someone digs that up and goes, there's only four jobs. <laughs> there must be four. We should make a test that helps you figure out which job you should have exactly what we do with spiritual gifts, right? See, Paul's arguing a bigger point here. The bigger point is, is that there's diversity in the body. There's a lot of diversity, yet unity. And he goes, let me give you an example. Let me just off the top of my head, let me grab nine spiritual gifts and let me list them off. And that's what Paul does here. He does the same thing in Romans and all the other places where, where spiritual gifts are made. It's just a list for a purpose. Paul didn't sit down and say, let me list off all 26 spiritual gifts. And then you can figure out which one you are, like a personality test. That's not what he does. So let's, let's, let's try to explain some of these, but just keep in mind, Paul grabs this list for the purpose of arguing something bigger. Let's work our way through them. Let me read it first. For to me, or for to one, pardon me, is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing, by the one spirit, to another, the working of miracles, to another, prophecy, 
To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. And to another, the interpretation of tongues. So let's just work through these really quickly. We could get bogged down here. And I'm going to recommend a few resources to you. I meant to bring them up here and show you. Um, There are some really good uh, works that will give you more development on what these gifts are. If you want, one of them is a book by Sam Storms. Um, Sam Storms is probably one of the most level-headed Pentecostals ever. I mean, he's just like, he, he spent most of his time in academics and the Reformed community, and then he's like, I think these gifts are for today. And, and so I, I appreciate him because I think he's really balanced in his approach. Okay, so Sam Storms, he wrote a book called, um, what's it called? Understanding the Spirit, if you want to check that out. Wayne Grudem, is another guy who is very, very, very biblical and has a very uh, pretty high view of the spiritual gifts. And you can read about his position in systematic theology. Does anybody have that book? If you put it on your shelf, people will think you're really smart. It's like this big. You just put it right on your coffee table. Your friends come over like, wow, look at you. You're smart. Um, yeah, just a pro tip for free. Uh, yeah, he's got a little section in there on the spiritual gifts uh, that you can read. Um, also, D.A. Carson did a, did a book called Showing the Spirit. You can look at that as well. Okay, moving on. So here's, here's these gifts to, 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 to some degree. The first two really come in a package, and it's the utterance of wisdom and the utterance of knowledge. What, what are these gifts? First of all, let me just say that the emphasis of Paul's use in these is not the gift itself as much as it is the utterance. So it's not as though there's people that have the ability of knowledge and the ability of, of wisdom. Okay, it's more that God gives at times, I believe, particular moments of uh, a wisdom for a particular uh, time, an utterance of wisdom and knowledge. Now, the more you read about this stuff, the more you're going to realize that nobody really knows what he's talking about there because there's just not that much Bible about it. So you can, you can fill it in for yourself and be like, oh, I think it's this. But you're kind of, you're leaving the scriptures at some point, right? So it's pretty vague. Paul assumes that these guys know what he's talking about. When he's like, some people have a, a word of wisdom, some people have a word of knowledge. He just assumes that they know the difference between those two things. And, and we don't necessarily know. It could be dimensions of prophecy. It could be, you know, different styles of prophecy. I don't know. But I think it's pretty safe to believe that the Spirit of God, when he wants to, can at times give particular revelation and a particular word into a particular situation in order to emphasize a particular thing. Do you think God can do that? I think so. Sure, why not? That doesn't mean we have to listen to every screwball that says they're a prophet. Don't do that. You know, just type in prophet on YouTube. You'll find some weirdos, okay? Uh, Just telling you, good night. There's a lot of crazy people that use the word prophet out there. So be careful. But I think God can speak to his people when he wants to. God has primarily spoken through the word and through his son, but I think God can also speak in other ways. The second gift in this list, really the third actually, is faith. Faith. Now that seems funny to list faith in a gifts list. I don't think Paul's talking about saving faith here. What is he talking about? He's talking about sanctifying faith. He's talking about faith that comes after you've been saved. I think the Holy Spirit gives to believers at times a special portion of faith in order to trust God through particular circumstances. And that's a gift. It may not be the most flashy gift. It may not be the gift we always pray for, but it's a gift nonetheless. Do you see the diversity that's starting to develop here in this list? Paul wants you to see there's lots of different types of gifts. The next one is gifts of healing. This one's pretty controversial, um, but the more you study it, the more you realize it doesn't need to be. Because he's not saying here that certain people have the gift of healing. Study the Greek. 
you'll find that when he says gifts of healing, it's a double plural, meaning it's gifts of healings. It's not, oh, I have the gift of healing. I can go heal people whenever I want. That's not true. It's gifts of healings, meaning that the Holy Spirit gives gifts of healings. So we pray, God heals, that was a gift of healing. Praise God. Not, I have the gift of healing. And by the way, here's my bank account number and deposit some money and you'll get your healing. Stuff makes me so mad. Not gifts of healing, it's gifts of healings. Fourthly, working of miracles. Or I guess it's the fifth in the list. Working of miracles. This one comes in the double plural as well. It's not, I'm a miracle worker. What do you do in the church? I'm a miracle worker. Awesome. No, that's not what he's saying. It's workings of miracles. It's at times through certain members of the body, God works miracles. Isn't that great? I'm so thankful for that. It's diversity. This is the point. Now, of course, if you were going to pray for any gift, you would pray for a miracle or you would pray for healing. You wouldn't pray for faith. But isn't it great that the Holy Spirit gets to decide which gift you have? And the Holy Spirit is going to decide how he's going to bring glory and attention to Jesus through your particular situation in life. Because we're inherently fleshly and selfish. We would just take power, 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 power. God's not about power. He's about glorifying Christ, sometimes through power, sometimes through weakness. Then we get to this more confusing one, prophecy. Now, I've spent a lot of hours <laughs> the last couple of weeks trying to figure out with more clarity what Paul means here when he says prophecy. And he talks a lot about it in chapter 14. And there, let, me just give you the, let me give you the divide. Let me give you the argument in Christianity, okay? Uh, there are some believers, totally believers, that love Jesus, that fall into a camp that is called cessationist. And the key word there is cessation, cease. They believe that certain gifts, the, what they call the sign gifts, healing, tongues, prophecy, have ceased with the era of the apostles. That those gifts, and this is true to some degree, that those gifts were poured out for the purpose of highlighting the apostles as sent from God, just like Jesus' miracles, to, to give um, authority to his voice and to the apostles' voice. But then when the Bible was fully uh, canonized, we no longer needed that, right? So those gifts ceased. Now, there are a lot of really good scholars, a lot of Jesus-loving, passionate Christians that are cessationists. Some of them even go to this church, okay? And that's okay. We can disagree on that. There's another side of this that is continuationist, and that side believes that these sign gifts or these... Um, you know, special sort of uh, supernatural abilities have carried on into now that they were not specific just to the early church, that we can still prophesy, that we can still see gifts of healings poured out, and that we can still speak in tongues. We'll, we'll get into that. That's the continuationist side of things. The cessationists argue... The cessationists argue that we needed these gifts early on in the first 10 to 20 years because we didn't have the Bible yet. And they also argue, rightly so, to some degree, that there's an overlap of covenants. The new covenant and the old, or the old covenant and the new covenant are overlapping. So that's why in the New Testament we still see Old Testament prophets like Agabus and the daughters of Philip. So, see, these guys were still a carryover from the Old Testament. And there's some truth to that because we do see prophecy happening in the New Testament. Okay, Agabus is sort of the number one guy. In, in the book of Acts, we see him prophesy over Paul. Uh, and so the question is, does that mean that those things have ceased or does that mean that those things continue? And my answer is the Bible doesn't explicitly say. It doesn't explicitly say that they ceased. You can look for it. 
I've listened to the best scholars argue this cessationist view. I just don't see it. It doesn't say they ceased. And, and also doesn't explicitly say that they hasn't. So, so I, I tend to sort of tend to err on the side of uh, what, what I call charismatic with a seatbelt. Okay? If, if people want to know where we're, where we're at, where's Philippi at on the spiritual goals? I'm like, charismatic with a seatbelt. And the seatbelt means we're not trying to be screwballs, but we do kind of believe that the Holy Spirit's still doing stuff. Yeah, we do. And, and that there are these gifts, and that these gifts are still available to the church. So prophecy, it would seem, uh, from, from, and we just don't have the time to look at all the, the passages, but probably the most compelling thing for me about prophecy is in Joel chapter 2, what does it say? It says that there's coming a time where all will prophesy, where old men will dream dreams. They're, they're, and and then, then Peter ascribes that Joel passage to Pentecost, and then he doesn't revoke it. So we believe as Christians, all Christians believe in the priesthood of all believers, right? We don't believe we need to go to the temple and see a priest anymore. Why? Because Jesus is our high priest and we are the priesthood. Well, why wouldn't we believe in the prophethood of all believers to some degree? That, that now the Spirit of God is, is released in many ways away from the limitation of prophet, priest, and king. And he's out in the world through the church and he's working through every socioeconomic scale and every gender and every person within the body. The Holy Spirit is working. Prophesying, ministering, why wouldn't we believe that? Now, of course, there's a lot of detail that you can get into. What, is it, what exactly counts as a prophecy? Here's what I believe. I believe the New Testament prophecy is a new covenant revelatory ability that is and can be fallible. So just because someone says God told me, that doesn't mean that it's Bible. Not even anywhere near the level of authority, right? It's available at certain times by the Spirit, to be discerned carefully in accordance with Scripture and applied only for, 1 Corinthians 14 tells us, upbuilding, encouragement, and consolation. So this isn't like, hey, the Spirit of God just told me that you should give me those French fries because I'm hungry. Is that encouraging? Is that edifying? Is that, you know, that was a bad example. But you get the idea. And prophecy, by the way, and this is, this is true of the whole Bible, prophecy usually, it, it tends to more focus on how God feels about something rather than some kind of a revelation of what's going to happen. Most of the prophecy in the Old Testament is actually the prophets coming and just somebody preaching God's heart and in revealing what God already said, pointing them back to the scripture. So that's, that's something to think about. Now, here's a few things that we know the Bible says. It says we are told not to despise prophecy. Can't rip that one out. Don't despise it. Okay? It also says that we are to weigh it and test the spirits. So that means, in my, in my opinion, open but cautious. I think the Bible leaves us in that place, open but cautious. Charismatic, seatbelt. Charismatic, seatbelt. By the way, the word charismatic just comes out of the word charismatas, which is grace gifts. It's right here. Charismatas, charismatic. Open but cautious. Beware of those who say, and this is just, uh, I'm going I'm to leave scripture for a minute, just give you my opinion. Okay, beware of those who say, we can train people to be prophets. I'm, I'm nervous about that. There's schools and, and ministries that say, um, we can, we can make you a prophet. You just need to practice. And, and by practice, I need you to try, to try to guess what that person had for lunch. I don't know what that is, but that's not the supernatural ability of the Spirit. Be graciously skeptical of those who claim to be a prophet, okay? Especially online, especially when they want your credit card information. Then we get to this last one, or no, a second to last one, distinguishing between spirits. This is also a gift. This is a gift that I think I've experienced at times. Um, it, it's simply the, the ability by the Spirit to discern whether something is, uh, which kingdom something's coming out of. 
Is this of the world? Is this of the, yeah, I, think, I think that that's a gift that comes at times for people. Um, have you guys ever driven through a really dark area and just the Lord's like, this is dark? I mean, it's just crazy how that works. And you can take that too far and you can start trying to cast the demons out of everything. And don't be that guy. But at the same time, we battle not against flesh and blood, but principalities and powers. Okay, so we'd be foolish not to recognize that there are spirits at work that are counteracting the Holy Spirit's work, and we need to be aware of those, tuned into those. Now, lastly, and notice that it's the last gift he mentions. He brings up the gift of tongues. Okay? Um, I feel like tongues, it's like that one relative, the families, just they don't really like, they accidentally invite them to, uh, to the Thanksgiving dinner, you know, because they're just, they're kind of weird, and they don't really know what to do with them. Like, tongues for a lot of evangelicals are just like, I don't know what to do with that. So I'm just going to kind of set it over here because it's weird. Um, that's kind of how a lot of people feel about tongues. And I don't think we should feel that way necessarily um, because Paul gives actually tons of clarity as to what he's talking about. He says, some have this gift of tongues, some have this gift of interpretation uh, of tongues. Now, he puts it last in the list, I think, because he's trying to get these guys to see, hey, this tongues thing is great, but it's not the primary feature of spiritual maturity. It's not the primary metric of spiritual maturity. Now, you might be asking, especially if this is your first time going to church, what are you talking about? What are tongues? What does that mean? Good question. I think chapter 13, verse 1, gives us a good definition. Paul says, even if I speak with the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong. So what does he define it there as? He defines it as tongue of men and angels. So there's two, I think, there's two types of tongues. One is a supernatural ability to speak real languages. It's what we see at Pentecost, human languages, when you need to. I hear stories about this all the time on the mission field. People are not able to speak a dialect. Holy Spirit gives them an ability to speak that. I think that's the tongues of men. I think the tongues of angels is some kind of a heavenly lexicon. That's all, I don't know, I don't know anything more than that. Never done it. Never spoke it. Uh, just, I'm just saying. I think, I think it seems from the, from the text, this isn't Sam's opinion, from the text, I can't get around the fact that there seems to be a language here, some kind of a heavenly language that believers, some believers have access to. I just, just can't get around that because Paul talks about it a lot. Now, here's some things that we know for sure about tongues when you read this whole section. I'll just hit these really quick. Okay, Paul says, he's going to go on to say that he himself speaks in tongues. He actually throws in there, more than any of y'all. You know what I'm saying? He, he says that. He's all, I speak in tongues more than any of you guys. And these guys, some of these guys had beef with Paul. I think that's why he's kind of like throwing that in. So, so for, for those that would like to say, nope, that gift's not real. That's not a real thing. That's just blabber, gibberish, blah, blah, blah. He's just talking about real languages. Paul's like, well, I do it. So I, I have a hard time getting around that. Um, Paul's going to say that he desires that they all speak in tongues. Um, I have a hard time getting around that. Um, he says more that you would prophesy, though. So, so there is a, a higher level of gift there because prophecy is edifying for the whole body, he'll say. He's going to say tongues, if interpreted, still speak to God and build, or even if not interpreted, pardon me, they still speak to God. So if you speak a word and, and nobody can interpret it, well, that was still something. There's still something there. And that's why a lot of Christians sort of land on this idea that this belongs in the prayer closet, that this is something between you and the Lord. And the only way it needs to come into the general assembly is if someone's going to translate for, for that, right? That's kind of where that idea comes from. Paul also says, get this, don't forbid it. He says not to forbid it. So I don't know. What do you think about that? Uh, 
He, he says there has to be a translation for it to make the cut in the local gathering. There's, there's some real good seatbelt in here. Isn't that great? Uh, there's some real good seatbelt to kind of hold this f- from, from going off the rails. So I think the scriptural conclusion is that this is a real gift that is given to some believers. Uh, I think it's probably for the purpose of um, speaking to God when you don't know what to say. I don't know. I've never spoken in tongues. I've asked for it. Never got it. Um, I didn't want to do the whole, like, just fake it till you make it thing. Just felt like that's kind of weird. So I'm not going to do that. Some people tell you, like, you just just do it. And I'm like, "Uh, no, No, I'm not going to do that. Um, It does not say everyone will receive it and that it is the sign of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, like some of our Pentecostal friends believe. And and less and less of them believe that anymore. That was the classic Pentecostal view. It was like, you get baptized in the Holy Spirit, you're going to speak in tongues. If you haven't spoken in tongues, you're not baptized in the Holy Spirit. Uh, That's not true. It's not true. Paul doesn't say that everyone's going to receive it. He says, I wish that y'all would, but he doesn't say everyone's going to receive it. So that can't be that some kind of ultimate sign. They're taking that from Pentecost, and I'm spending too long on this, so we're going to move on. Now, Paul, I'd love to talk to anybody about this uh, more if you guys have more questions. And hopefully in your groups, you guys will, will talk about it, and you can all share your crazy stories. Um, that's what people do when we talk about gifts. We're like, oh, I remember this one time. This guy slapped me on the head. It was crazy. Or, you know, I mean, there's all kinds of stories. Um, I've got crazy stories, too, that I can't explain. I mean, they're, they're valid. Uh, verse 11. And these are empowered by one and the same Spirit, who apportions to each one individually as he will. So let's bring it back to Paul's big idea. Paul's big idea is that God gives gifts. They're diverse, and they're for his purposes, and he's the one that pours them out. Now, verse 12, Paul's going to give us this beautiful metaphor that we use all the time here at Philippi Church. Here in verse 12. For just as the, note it, body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. I just have to pause and I want you to see something here. I just remind you of the beauty of the gospel. You would expect Paul to say here that just like it is with the body, so it is with the body of Christ. Just like it is with the body, we're all members and we're all part of one body, and so it is with the church. But rather, he says, just like it is with the body, so it is with Christ. He says you are the body of Christ, not you're a body and Jesus is over you. What I mean by that is that you have been brought into union with Jesus. You are the body of Christ. It's not like you're the team and he's the coach. No, he's the team and we're on it. He's the mind. He's the head. We're the body. We are in Christ. That's really good news. We're in Jesus. So he gives this metaphor of what the, the, the church should be considered as. He says it's like a body, a body that has multiple different parts, but all of those parts are still part of one body is what he gets at. Now he's going to unpack for us what that, why that matters and how that has application for us. Look at verse 14. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body. You know how many people I've, as a pastor, you know how many people I've seen that have said that? I mean, not that exact thing. That'd be weird, right? Um, but, but like, hey, I, I just don't fit here. I just don't fit here. So I gotta go. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go to church with some hands. I'm gonna go find a church that, that thinks just like me. That's what people do. I'm getting ahead of myself. Because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body. That would not make it any less a part of the body. Verse 16. If the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body. That would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the whole body were an eye, 
That's a weird picture. Where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members of the body, each one of them, as he chose. Listen, if all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. Here's the point. Christianity is not a solo sport. It's not. It's not golf. It's not tennis. It's not bowling. It's like football. Okay? It, it takes a whole team, and you need a lot of different kinds of players. I was thinking about this this morning. I'm not a football guy, but I know enough to know that if you put a team full of quarterbacks up against an NFL team, they get crushed, right? Same time, if you put just a team full of linebackers up against an NFL team, they'd get crushed. You need one guy who's not very big, but he's pretty good at throwing the ball really well. You need another guy who's pretty fast, and he can run with the ball. You need another guy that's just massive to just stop people. This is a guy that isn't into football talking about football. You like it? (laughs) And there's other positions, and I don't know what they are, but... You need guys to shoot free throws. No, that's a different sport. Okay, forget that. The point Paul's getting at here is this is is about diversity. Don't you hate the word diversity has been taken? Can we have that back, please? Diversity was God's idea, okay? Diversity was God's idea. And diversity is the beauty of the body. God made his church to be so diverse. And the body is only operating correctly when it is embracing and encouraging the body diversity. We need it. I've had a lot of experiences as as a kid and as an adult at different churches. I went to a church for a lot of years where this church had a lot of brain, a lot of head, and a decent amount of heart, but very little hands. I should say very little feet. Like, like we, we were really good at our theology, but we didn't really want to do anything. It's like, let's just keep kind of getting together and talking about theology. We don't, we don't want to do anything. I've been part of other churches that were all hands and all heart. We're going to get out. We're going to serve the poor. We're going to have all these things. We're going to do all these things. But it was like there was no head, very little eyes and ears to discern and see what could be dangerous, what could be in error. I was part of a church that had all the body, and really the only reason anyone was coming to listen, was to listen to a mouth. 4,000 people coming to listen to one body part and then leaving. I feel like there's something missing there, right? We need the whole body. We need the whole body. Churches are like sorting bins, aren't they? Here's what happens. You know, churches by nature, they tend to start pretty eclectic. People are, are, are kind of like where we're at right now. This is a really sweet phase. I, I pray to God that it stays. Y'all are here because you're excited about Jesus. And you don't really know what I think yet about theology. You're like, I don't know. Sam could be a charismatic or he could be a, I don't really know. But I'm going to just come and see. Because, you know, these people are excited about Jesus and they're singing. And the gospel is on display. And Christ is being glorified. And people are coming. And people are getting saved. And it's exciting. Woo! We're all about Jesus, right? And then in a year, Sam gets up or somebody gets up and says something. And you're like, I don't like that. I don't like that song. And it's, this church is just a little too whatever for me. And then your friend is like, you should come to my church. We're exactly like you. And you're like, oh, awesome. That's cool. So you go to the church where everyone's just like you. 
And, and then what happens to the church that you left? The church that you left is no longer able to benefit from the thing that God has perhaps impressed on your heart that could bring health and, and diversity and a holisticness to, to, the, to the body itself. And now you're just, you're just going to a church full of thumbs or a church full of ears. There's a lot of churches that are all ears. They're all just like, we're all about discernment. You're all about discernment. And you hate everybody. And no one's part of the church with you. No one's ever good enough because you're all ears, right? <laughs> Take some of those ears and put them over here where the church, it's all hands and heart. And they just want to go do stuff, but they don't want to read theology. We need both. We need this diversity. One of my greatest fears for this church is that at some point we'll stop being diverse and we'll start looking the same. Because what happens is people leave and they go somewhere else and then those seats get filled with people that are just like the people that were already there. That happened during COVID in a lot of churches in this city. Droves of people left because they didn't like the politics or they didn't like the policies. And then guess what happened? All those seats got filled by people that did like the policies and did like the politics. I'm not saying you should never leave a church. I'm not saying there's not good reasons to leave a church. But I am saying if you feel like you don't fit in completely, stay, please. If you feel like you, got, you, got, you have a, a, some, something that's maybe a little different, or an emphasis that maybe is not the primary emphasis of the leadership, good. I mean, Ryan and I, we're, we're, we're like, we're, like we're, we're barely one-dimensional. No offense. I, I mean, we, we need your guys' dimension. We need your thoughts. We need your expertise. We need your wisdom. We need your, your ears and, and thumbs and hands and heart and head. And We need you. We need, this is not about how do we make a church where we're all the same and everybody comes because they like one particular flavor. No, this is, this is about how do we reflect the true diversity of the body of Christ. And I think the way that we do that is we work through some of these differences. Oh, Lord, please keep us united for the gospel. And the way that that happens is by keeping the main thing the main thing. We're not culture warriors. We're gospel proclaimers. That's the focus. May that always be the focus here. We gotta speed up. <laughs> Number two, the interdependency of the Spirit. Now we're gonna shift into verse 21. The interdependency of the Spirit, or the Spirit's work. 21, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, and that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have, some, uh, have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Why is Paul saying this? He's saying this because the, the church had sort of degraded into this place where two or three charismatic spiritual people were getting all of the focus and all of the care and all of the tension and all the accolades, and all of the body is over here being mishandled. And not utilized. And so Paul is saying, hey, look at the weaker members, so-called. Look at those that maybe need a little more covering. They're worth it. There's an interdependency in the body that's supposed to be there. It's not just about the hands, the people that can carry the most heavy loads or the heaviest backs. It's about all the parts of the body. Value it all. He says in verse 27, now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. 
In most organizations, particularly in the world thinking, uh, the, the most uh, outward person, the person that's the most visible, is, is usually thought of as the most important. Christ flips that over. Paul flips that over. He says, in my economy, in my kingdom, that's completely the opposite. And that's why I think where Paul brings up this paganism thing. He's like, you guys are acting like pagans. You're putting two or three people up there because they're really charismatic, and, you're, and you're, everyone's looking at them. And really, everyone should be looking at the body. You know, there's a reason that, that most of the Sundays here we break into circles. It's because I just, I just want us to do this. I just want us to do this. Lest you think that, that Christian maturity is being able to get up and talk. It's not. Christian maturity is all around you. There are people sitting around you that are way more mature than I am. Just because I get up here and talk doesn't mean I'm the most mature person in the room. You need each other. You need the body. You need each and every person. And no one person is in here is completely Jesus. You need all of them. 28, and God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles and gifts of healing, helps administrating various kinds of tongues. Now, Paul's not creating a hierarchy there that would undermine everything he said. He's giving another list for the purpose of diversity. Are all apostles? No. Are all prophets? No. Are all still teachers? Or are, I'm sorry, are all teachers? No. Do all work miracles? No. Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? He says, but earnestly desire. Now, this is super important. So if, you're, if I lost you, come back. Okay, zone in. He says, but earnestly desire the higher gifts. And I will show you still a more excellent way. We talk about higher gifts, Paul. I thought you just said that, that it's all about diversity and balance. And like, yeah, it is. He's like, but there's something that's way more important. There's something greater still. And now he's going to unpack what that is for us. There's something greater that he wants us to see. I'll put it this way. It, well, Paul, Paul is basically saying, not everyone's going to get to be a teacher. Not everyone's going to be an apostle. Not everyone's going to work miracles. Not everyone's going to have the gift of tongues. But everyone can pursue this main thing. And it's actually way more important than all of these gifts. What is it? Well, let's read the love chapter. How many of you guys have heard the love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, in, in, in weddings? Nothing wrong with that. But when we only use it in that context, we forget that actually the love chapter was meant to be the crescendo of Paul's argument. Not about romance, but about how we as the church should care and love for one another within the gathering and within our assembly. So let's look at it real quickly. Chapter 13, we're gonna do a whole chapter in five minutes. Verse 13, he says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have, that was, I think that was a little jab there at the, the tongue speakers in, in, the, in the, the congregation. He's like, you guys are annoying. I get it. You're spiritual. Gong, you're just like annoying, right? I think it's what he's getting at. Verse 2. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge and I have all faith. You notice he's rethreading the needle of all those gifts he's, he mentioned earlier. So as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. In other words, who cares how charismatic you are? Who cares how gifted you are? Who cares how much stuff you're doing? Who cares how much you've done for the Lord? If you don't have Christ-like love in you, through you, it doesn't matter. 
Paul goes on to give more clarity now about what the character of love is. You'll notice it's very similar to the fruit of the Spirit. Verse 4, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. These are things that were not happening in the church at Corinth. There was a lack of patience. There was a lack of kindness. There was an absence of humility. There was a presence of boasting. There was underlying envy. All of this is happening in the church. Paul's saying, let me tell you what love really looks like. Let me tell you what the character of the Holy Spirit looks like. Let me tell you what the character of God looks like. It's not arrogant. It's not rude. It doesn't exist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Who do we have as a model of that? Christ. So the primary, this is a very important sentence, the primary mark of the spirit is spiritual character, not spiritual charisma. Let me say that again. The mark of, or the, the primary mark of the spirit is spiritual character, not spiritual charisma. That's why when you go to the qualifications of an elder, what you're not going to find is a list about how gifted you need to be, how charismatic you need to be. Rather, you're going to find a list about how qualified in terms of your character that you need to be. Because that's really where the Spirit is working. Verse 8. This is cool. Love never ends. Stop and think about that for a minute. Uh, the world has hijacked the word love, haven't they? Love wins, love this, love that. But, but they mean something entirely different. They mean fuzzy feelings. They mean good vibes. They mean squishy, world-like love. This is talking about the ferocious, never-ending, eternal, Trinitarian God's love. It's talking about the love that is sourced in God himself. It never ends because God is eternal. It's not a substance, it's a person. Are you with me? Love never ends. As for prophecies, they're going to pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part... And we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, I don't think the perfect means the Bible. I think perfect means the end of all things. When Jesus comes and resurrects the universe and sin and death are completely put away, when the perfect comes, the partial, which is what you're in now, will pass away. Listen to this. There's another verse that's taken out of context. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So Paul's not saying, hey, if you're immature, you need to grow up. He's saying, hey, the nature of this world we live in right now is immaturity because we have not yet seen full revelation, full reality. It's all going to pass away. Verse 13, so now faith, hope, and love abide. Right now we have faith, we got hope, we got love. These are all things that are happening but the greatest of these is love. And the implication of this is that hope, it's going to cease. Why? Well, what is hope? Hope's waiting, that something's gonna, waiting for something to happen. Well, when the perfect comes, we don't need hope anymore. What about faith? Faith is great, it's valuable, it's important. But faith at some point will cease. Why? Because we won't need it anymore. Why? Because we will be in the presence of complete and perfect love. Isn't that really cool? So what does that tell us? It tells us that the gifts in church and body life and ministry, it's all really great, but it's not the point. It's something meant to get us to God himself, who is the love. 
God is the point. It's, it's, this is the whole point of the Holy Spirit, is to get us to the eternal, sufficient nature of God himself. Embracing the gifts without God is like a cup without water. It's pointless. The gifts are to get just to the love of God. This is Paul's argument. He's saying, yeah, guys, it's great that you're so spiritual. It's great that you're so charismatic. But you're actually immature. You're actually babies because you're not focusing on God himself, the love of God himself. You're not allowing it to come through and in you in your assembly. So you're actually babies. Paul's metric for maturity is whether you are living in light of the love of God. Now, let me try to really quickly sort of land this whole series. Why did I choose to end here? Because if there's one thing I want you to take away from this series, it is that the Holy Spirit is not the part of God that it just exists to give you power and make you feel significant like you're doing stuff and give you goosebumps. The Holy Spirit is just trying to get you to Christ, to get you to God, to draw you into the person of God himself. That's what the Holy Spirit's trying to do. And anything less will ultimately end in just a pagan spirituality. It's my prayer. Join me in this prayer is that God would make us a spirit-filled church. Not because we're really into floaty things, metaphysical things, but because Jesus is the focus, because God is the center, his glory, his superiority, his sufficiency. Not look at us, look what we're doing. We're doing so many cool things. Look all the great stuff God's doing through us. No, look at God. Look at him. Anything else is disappointing. Christ centrality, gospel centrality. It's Jesus at the middle. And that's where the power of the Spirit is. I'll say it over and over and over again. You want the power of the Spirit? Start preaching Jesus. Start releasing the gospel, which is news about what Jesus has done. Amen? Let's stand. I invite Stephanie back up and close us out. Well, Father in heaven, we thank you for your Spirit. We think of these last five weeks where we've been able to just consider this amazing gift that you gave us. And so, Lord, together we just confess some of these realities that we've learned. We confess that, Holy Spirit, you are not a force. You are a person. You are God. You are a member of the Trinity. You have a will. You have a mind. You have emotion. So, Holy Spirit, may we recognize you. May we also recognize what you came to do, which was to glorify Jesus. So, would you make us good at that? Would you release gifts in this body? Not so that we can feel really awesome. Not so we can, 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 can see power happen through our bodies. But so that your body can be built up. God, I, I just recognize a few things this morning. I, I recognize that there are people here this morning that have not yet trusted that you picked them to be in the body and that they need the body and that the body needs them. So Lord, would you, would you just stoke their hearts to see the importance of this thing that you made, that we need them. Lord, I recognize that there are people here this morning that maybe don't feel like they fit a gift list. Lord, did you give them confidence to know that they are, in fact, a tool in your tool belt and that their particular mix of, of giftings is so needed? 
God, help us to keep the main thing, the main thing. Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. Father, we love you. We sing to you, in Jesus' name. Amen.